0: Welcome back. Welcome back to Freight Waves Live at Home. I'm George Abernathy, the proud president of Freight Waves, and I am thrilled uh, to have the opportunity today to talk to Brooke Sutherland. Brooke is the industrial and M&A columnist for Bloomberg Opinion uh, of Bloomberg, and um, I think that given the time frame, what we're going through right now, what a perfect opportunity for us to talk to someone like Brooke with, with her background and expertise. Welcome, Brooke, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for doing this.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Wish we could be there in person, but this I do is too,
0: it. I do too. Virtually is better than nothing, but hopefully we'll be able to do this together at some point real soon. So uh, you're in New York, I guess uh, I do have to, um, with 150 people here at Freight Waves, I have to be totally honest and upfront, we do have two Washington and Lee alums here. John Kingston, uh, one of our editors and market experts, and Preston Brown, who uh, uh, is the director of all of our media sales and business development, are both uh, generals, I think is what we call you guys, right?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: All right. So uh, we'll make sure that I keep it up to the level of uh, of Washington and Lee. So, you're in New York, you're right in the center of everything that's going on. I'll, I'll just ask, sort of to start uh, off here, um, how has this affected you? And um, you've been, I think, as we were talking, about seven weeks where you've been self quarantining?
1: Yes. I mean, it's interesting. I think it's recalibrating a lot of our expectations. If I think about myself personally, I mean, living in New York, you could get anything that you wanted um, in a matter of days, whether you were ordering it from Amazon or Walmart or whatever that might be, anything and everything was right at your fingertips. And obviously, our expectations for delivery times have now been significantly reset. And, you know, I think for me personally, what I'm willing to pay for delivery has also been recalibrated. When you think about the value of these services, it used to be something that we just took for granted, that there was always gonna be free shipping and free returns. And I think now we're realizing how much we depend on that. And so as I think about myself personally coming out of the other side of this, I'm certainly gonna have a lot of appreciation for the delivery services and just the ease of it. Um, and, you know, and also an appreciation for all the work that those drivers are doing right now. I've been trying to give out little bottles of Gatorade to um, <laughs> you know, my appreciation for continuing to, to show up at my door during this crisis.
0: That's really wonderful. So I think recalibration is a great way to look at everything that you write about. Um, at the recalibrating for me, let's sort of go through the physical businesses, then maybe maybe move into some of the discussions around the employees and, and the the workers. So talking about you know businesses and that recalibration, um, it was relatively easy may not be the right word, but effective to trust the global supply chain. that certainly, isn't the case, do you think that it's possible that the global supply chain as we know it will never go back to the way that it was before?
1: I do. And, you know, part of the reason why I think that is you were already seeing that idea sort of unravel because of the U.S.-China trade war. So it's interesting when you hear companies talk at this point in time about how they're adapting to the coronavirus, a lot of that work was already started because of the U.S.-China trade war, where you had companies saying, I cannot be this dependent on China for my supply chain because I don't want to pay all of these tariffs. So they were already starting to do the work to sort of move away from China. And now I think what you're going to see happen is people say, maybe we don't want our supply chains to be so stretched. Maybe we don't need to be all over the world. Maybe we need to think more about localization and what that really means. And I do think you're going to see more and more of that. I think, you know, the coronavirus in all of its different ramifications, has certainly shown companies where the vulnerable points are in their supply chain. And I think you're gonna see a lot of companies doing a lot of work in terms of rethinking how they need to shore up reliability there. now that does not come cheap But I think that's certainly going to be an investment that you're going to see companies prioritizing. And especially as we come out of this, I mean, there's so much political stigma right now to share repurchases and that type of thing. So if you're looking at shoring up your business and how do I protect this for shareholders, I think supply chain is going to be a really important place for investment.
0: That's really interesting. So as you think about more nearshoring or shortening geographically that, does that bode well for Mexico, Canada, and the like? Do you you see Mexico becoming the new China?
1: I think it does. I mean, look, so many manufacturers are already very dependent on Mexico. I mean, I think if you're thinking about the new China, it's more places like Vietnam, um, you know, where you do have that lower cost manufacturing base. Now, I will say that's a lot easier for some manufacturing industries than it is for others. If you think about things like fashion, it maybe doesn't matter so much to be in China, but they're really you know, highly skilled manufacturing jobs are still going to have to be dependent on China. When you look at the infrastructure that they have there and the supply chain that they have, that's just not very easily replicated. But I do think, look, you could see more dependence on Mexico and Canada, certainly for things that we decide now are more of a national security matter, whether that's medical equipment or, you know, certain protective supplies. I think there is going to be certainly an emphasis on having more of those supply chains in North America specifically. But even broadening it out beyond that, I mean, I think, you can look at some of the technology that manufacturers now have at their fingertips and whether that might enable them to have more facilities even in, you know, parts of Eastern Europe or uh, the U.S., where it's maybe, you know, more economical now than it might have been, whether that's 3D printing or some of this, you know, industrial Internet of Things technology that, that still is a little bit amorphous um, in general than practicality sometimes. But I do think there are some opportunities there.
0: That's really interesting. So, let's um, let's calibrate or recalibrate uh, um, around the physical nature of the supply chain. Do you see inventory uh, impacts long term here in uh, in the U.S.? Do you see us being more cognizant that a black swan, when it happens, will have that kind of kind of impact? So. We'll want to have our supply chains being more ready for that, but the offset or the challenge on that is the expense, correct? So how do you see that balancing itself out?
1: So, it's interesting. I actually had a conversation about this topic with uh, David Simchi Levy, who's a professor of supply chain management at MIT, and he was saying, look, you're still going to have just-in-time inventory. The economics of that have been proven. That's clearly a strategy that companies need to rely on, but you're also going to see just-in-case inventory is what he built it, where you're going to have sort of a central deposit of the inventory that you really need. And sometimes this is not necessarily what you think of as essential items, but you can miss that one bolt or that one piece that can cause that whole manufacturing line to break down. And so I think you're going to see companies focus more on having that sort of depository of necessary resources in the event that you do have another pandemic. Because look, the world, you know, part of globalization is that we're increasingly, you know, expanding more and more into territories where it was primarily the domain of animals. And they think that that maybe played a role in this coronavirus. So I think it's realistic to think that we could see crises like this in the future. And if you're a company, you want to spend that money now to protect your supply chain in the future. I think shareholders would rather have you make that investment than when the next pandemic comes, you go back and say, why why weren't you more proactive after mm-hmm. the first happen. Why didn't you spend that money to better protect your business? So I do think that's going to be a priority. But like you said, it is an expense. It's not for free, but risk management isn't for free. And it's one of those things that as a company, you just have to do.
0: It's fascinating. So let's keep going on that expense or where I may, if I'm a manufacturer, where I'm going to have to be thinking about my supply chain. Do you see any specific technologies or other... Um, potential mechanisms that would be the kind of thing I should be thinking about investing in within my supply chain and, and how impactful will that be to my shareholders?
1: Uh, I alluded earlier to 3D printing, and I really think, you know, as unfortunate as the coronavirus crisis has been, there's really been no better showcase for this technology in terms of what it can do, specifically when you think about the speed of the turnaround here. You know, I was talking to uh, a leader in GE's healthcare business, and they were saying, you know what, we needed to bring more facilities online to make ventilators. But to do that, the traditional tooling process can take weeks. And so instead, they used 3D printing to print the tooling so they could get those factories up and running. And the speed of that turnaround process just cannot be replicated. And I think you're really (laughs) seeing the versatility of this technology and the fast turnarounds. And I just think that that is going to stick with people and it's going to resonate. Now, 3D printing is not a solution for everything. And that example that I just gave of GE. That's more of a stopgap measure so they can get the facilities up and running, and you're not going to make that type of tooling via 3D printing. But there's a lot of things that they can do, and a lot of companies are saying, hey, can I actually print the parts that I need rather than depend on this supplier? Um, You know, I talked to SLM, which makes 3D printers, and they're actually printing parts for their own machines because they were worried about shortages, specifically when you saw all the shutdowns in China. So I think you're gonna see more and more companies looking at that and looking to say, okay, here are my points of vulnerability. Can I plug that gap with 3D printing? Because you can put a 3D printer pretty much anywhere and it's gonna cost about the same. So that sort of fits in with this whole trend of localizing manufacturing. If you wanna bring more of that work back to North America or into parts of Europe, One way to do that can be with 3D printing. Now, I also think, you know, when you talk about this industrial Internet of Things, a lot of the maintenance part of that becomes really important. When you're tracking, you know, when is my equipment going to break down? That can help you plan ahead so that you don't have these type of supply chain disruptions. If you know that this piece of equipment is gonna stop working in a couple of weeks, you can place that order now rather than have that machine break down, then you're stuck waiting for who knows how long given sort of whatever the supply chain disruption might look like in that particular scenario.
0: Absolutely fascinating. Let me me turn a little bit to, I wanna make sure that we spend some time on some of your recent writings around human capital and how will we and, and what I like about um, this way and this format for Freight Waves Live at Home is this, um, this content will be to some degree evergreen. And I think that the things that we're talking about now um, could be looked at six months or maybe even six years down the road. Human capital right now, um, you've written about how different companies have been handling layoffs, furloughs, or other ways of handling both union and non-union so that if there is a certain type of business that can spin up relatively quickly, they've got to have those resources available. How, can you talk a little bit to some of the different uh, strategies or different ways that companies have been handling their, uh, their human capital?
1: Sure. I mean, I think it's been interesting. Obviously, we're sort of in the early days of earnings season. But in the calls I listened to last week, I mean, it was sort of a repeated emphasis on furloughs, even for companies who don't traditionally go that route, such as Emerson Electric. Um, and then the railroad, CSX and Union Pacific also talked about this, about how they're keeping some of their employees on reserve so that they can bring them back more quickly when the volume does come back. And I think there's a couple different factors at play there. One is that this is an unprecedented event. None of us have ever lived through anything like this. We don't know what a recovery is going to look like. You can look at China as a model, but it's really not very good for the U.S. and Europe, because we don't have a controlled economy. We just can't flip the switch on and off in the same way that China can. And so in terms of predicting the pace of this, I just think that no CEO can tell you what this is going to look like, and they have to be prepared for all eventualities. And the nature of this crisis is that it hit every company at once. Usually when you have a recession, it's caused by pockets of excess, whether that's, you know, in the housing market or in the oil and gas market. And so obviously those companies would be sort of the first dominoes to fall. You didn't have that this time. So there's no real you know, overabundance that needs to be reined in. And you're not, you're seeing sort of every company have to make these cost cuts really rapidly. But that can also mean that everything comes back online at the same time. And I think you could see a lot of competition for labor. Certainly we've seen right now, you know, Amazon is hiring a ton of people to try to keep up with the delivery demand. You can have these other sources pulling jobs away people who are laying people off because they have to adjust to the downshift in volume. But I do think that's going to mean that companies have to be prepared so they're taking tax now so that they make sure they do have that labor available down the road.
0: So that uh, description of the potential feeding frenzy uh, around bringing back or bringing on uh, these workers, have you thought at all or or done any um, analysis around how that could, depending on how it all plays itself out, shift geographically where we're living? Uh, is, 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 that, is that pull of jobs going to potentially be different than where we were just seems like forever ago, but just a couple of months ago when we were at relatively full employment? You, have you, you thought about that feeding frenzy and people being pulled from places that they don't currently reside?
1: Well, certainly, I, I you know I see all the articles about people wanting to to leave New York in waves, um, which is great for my uh, real estate investment in my apartment. But um, you no, know, I you know I think. I don't in terms of the manufacturers I don't know. I mean domestically speaking why you would necessarily see a huge shift just right. given where they tend to be based. I don't know if you're really going to get a lot of benefits from from moving those locations around, but you know, look, I do think that one thing that's going to be really telling as we go through this crisis is the way in which companies treat their employees. Even if, you know, some of them you're in a position where inevitably you're going to have to make cost cuts, but I think people will remember. I mean, this is different from the 2008-2009 recession. It's different from the 2015-2016 oil price crash. This is a very human crisis. People are going to look at how companies treated their employees and maybe make some waiver decisions off of that. And I also think that shareholders are going to judge companies based on this because it says a lot, you know, in terms of your social environment that you're creating and, you know, whether or not you take good care of your employees. And so I do think that I'm hopeful, I guess, as we <laughs> come out the side of this, that that is going to be a more important value for companies. I mean, certainly ESG was a really big theme last year and a key theme going into the beginning of this year. And it sort of got thrown up into the air by everything that happened with the coronavirus crisis. But we have seen better returns for companies that are ESG. And I was talking to an investor the other day who said, you know what, I'm rethinking my definitions right now for what ESG actually means, mm. because i what companies do during this crisis and how they treat their employees. And so I do think in terms of attracting labor and attracting shareholders, that's going to be a really key item to watch coming out of this.
0: That That is so fina- fascinating uh, to me to think that the shareholder that's been treated so well over the last decade or so um, may be willing to, you know, allow for doing the right thing by the employee to be potentially impactful to the end of that quarter or the end of that year and as you're talking to you mentioned a couple of railroads some other significant manufacturers have you have you heard in their reporting that that is resonating with them that they're not only understanding that they have to do it but they might be hearing from shareholders that the shareholders realize that this is something we've never seen before, and that the employees have to be treated as employees.
1: I mean, I think certainly BlackRock really led the way on yeah. the, the ESG movement, getting momentum um, when it came out, and you know said it was going to evaluate ESG with the same uh, you know type of lens at which it looks at liquidity risks. I mean, that's a pretty significant benchmark to compare this to in terms of importance. Um, but look, I think, you know, listening to earnings calls so far, I was really struck by Fastenal, um, which is an industrial theater, and it is not a company that ranks very high in your typical ESG rankings. But, you know, the CEO really made an effort at the very beginning of the call to say, here's what we've done. Here's what we've told employees. You know, we extended their benefits so that they could have more unpaid time off in case they did get sick or in case they just had to deal with some of the ramifications of this. Like, having children at home, which I know is a situation that a lot of people have to deal with right now. Um, And it was just very interesting. It was not, you know, a company that you typically think of as standing out on that front, but they really were empathetic for their employees and showing, you know, a lot of compassion in the way that they were running their business. And I do think that that is going to stand out for investors. And ultimately, when you have happier employees, you're going to have a better business. And so I do think you are seeing shareholders really come around to this idea and start to be supportive of it. Um, I mean, the other way that you see that is, you know, I talked about this before, but the stigma attached to share buybacks. I mean, Mm -hmm. right. Right. Pushback there, and even healthier companies are putting those buybacks on ice. And I just think that you're seeing that fall out of favor, and that shareholders are going to want companies to put that money toward employees, just so they don't get dragged through the political mud.
0: That's really interesting. I, I wanted to uh, maybe uh, summarize this uh, as we're want to say maybe maybe uh, land the plane here and ask you to pull out your crystal ball, um, and while. These Black Swan events, um, you know, I, I've been around long enough. I remember 9-11 so much, and some of the things that were put into place at that point that still are part of our lives today, whether they be related to travel or other other elements, you put your crystal ball. I mean, I, it's certainly such a significant event 9-11 that it's more important than the four ounce bottles but the security elements that have come from what 9-11 was have lived on for the for the nearly 20 years when we look back what will we look back and say yep that's that's what changed will we will within the manufacturing the supply chain the delivery e-commerce what what do you think you'll you'll be able to say a few years you'll look back and say yep that's because of what happened in 2020
1: sure I, a couple of different things I mean I cover the aviation sector as well I mean I certainly think you're, it's going to be a long time before we see a return of international travel to the extent that we saw it before. Um, and what you're seeing airlines do now, I mean, in terms of taking out the middle seat and you know creating more distance between people, I do wonder whether we may be going down the path of actually putting some of that room back onto airplanes. I know a lot of passengers would be happy to see that come back. Um, on the e-commerce front, I think that you're seeing you know sort of a permanent shift to comfort with grocery delivery. Um, This was actually relatively new territory before all of this happened, but now you're seeing more and more people use that service. So what does that do um, to, you know, intermediate, traditional grocery stores and and companies like Walmart. Um, And in terms of manufacturers, I really think the key point is going to be supply chains um, and what companies do in terms of rethinking that. I I really believe that 3D printing is going to be a huge part of that. Um, And I think, you know, as we fast forward 10, 20 years down the road, I think the role of 3D printing in manufacturing Mm -hmm. will be very significant. And that you're going to see this huge wave of innovation in terms of companies, not only rethinking, you know, how how do I make this part that I've now seen as vulnerable to disruptions, but how can I completely redesign my product to use 3D printing from the start to make it more efficiently and more cost effectively um, and, you know, arguably maybe a better product.
0: Wonderful. Brooke, we've reached the uh, end of our time together. I wish we could go much, much, much longer, but I really appreciate you doing this. The invitation is out there for any Freight Waves event for you to participate. We really want to thank you. Appreciate your time and your thoughts. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.